You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. And I am Janice Baker, sitting in for Dr. Stephen Edelman. What do healthcare professionals need to know to help their patients with diabetes better manage diet, stress, and physical activity? Joining us to discuss the relationship between diet and diabetes is president and founder of After the Diet Network in Phoenix, Arizona, Monica Woolsey. Ms. Woolsey, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for having me. What is the challenge for patients living with diabetes and their overall diet management? Janice, I think probably the biggest thing is that we're asking them to go from being relatively unaware of what they're doing with their food to being mindful of it 24-7. So we're asking them to think about food and be a little bit more proactive rather than reactive, and that, and that takes the food and it, and it integrates it with feelings and behaviors and schedules and things that, that they may not have ever had to do before. Yeah, it can be pretty overwhelming. So uh, with that, what are typical eating disorders or challenges that you might see? The most common one um, in, in our culture overall, men and women, is binge eating disorder. Um, and, and that is either due to not eating well enough early in the morning, skipping breakfast, which is a very common behavior, and then waiting until you're completely hungry or uh, it's related to stress, it may be related to some kind of a, a biochemical imbalance, even a medication that changes the way that we respond to appetite and cravings. You know, I just had this thought, would you say that even some people don't even realize they have a binge eating disorder, they just think that's normal? It's, it's become so prevalent, and even um, when you look at different advertising for certain foods, um, it's, it's almost as if binging is marketed as a way to reward yourself. It's, it's not even a pathological behavior anymore. How do you define stress eating, and how common is it in this patient population? We all eat stress eat if you're over two years old and you have access to any kind of media. <laughs> You live in the United States, but so it's really eating as a as a way to relieve any kind of stress, a physical and emotional um, change in your biochemistry that you get relief from with food. Um, so I might, in being nervous for this interview, may have had an extra cookie that was sitting around while I was waiting to call in. Um, but it can escalate to the point where it can become and consume the major portion of a person's day. So where it begins to interfere with their work, their relationships, their finances. And I would say in this population, it's fairly prevalent um, due partly because we have asked them to be more mindful of things such as emotions that are uncomfortable and partly because the biochemistry of diabetes can interfere with hunger and appetite regulation and sensation, and it, it, it gets all jumbled, and, and that's where a dietitian like you or me can help them to sort through that. Now, do you see any differences in stress eating between type 1 and type 2 diabetic patients? You know, actually with the type 1s that I've seen, they also have the ability to manipulate medication. So and it's, I've seen this more so in younger patients than in older ones where they might change the amount of insulin they administer themselves, thinking that they can get away with the stress eating. 
Um, and that's actually, to me, the more dangerous kind of stress eating, just giving yourself a little bit more insulin to accommodate the extra food that you want to eat. Um, with the type 2s, um, there's more guilt, I think, and more emotions that come up on the after end that can drive the binge, where it may have started out as being hungry because your appetite mechanism isn't working and then craving something to self-medicate how you feel about what you've just eaten. Where does sleep, physical activity, and stress play a role in the management of diabetes? There's a lot of information suggesting that sleep is really important, and and people who do not sleep well tend to have more problems with insulin resistance, Um, and I think part of that may come from if you're not sleeping well and you're rushing out the door because you woke up, finally fell asleep just before the alarm went off and you woke up and rushed out the door without breakfast, then you're spending the rest of the day living on caffeine and sugar for the energy that it provides. And then by the time it's time to settle down at night, you're so caffeinated and, and sugared that it, it's, it's hard to come down off of that. And it's a very vicious, challenging cycle to break. Many of the people we work with, we actually focus on the sleep behaviors before the food, teaching them that if you can get your sleep patterns in, in order, it can actually help to regulate the hunger and satiety issues that you're struggling with. I have my clients redefine rules so that breakfast doesn't have to be something that is eaten before they're leaving the house, sitting down at the breakfast table. It can be something that they they have in their refrigerator at their desk at work as long as it's eaten before 10 a.m. And for for some of the, the, uh, especially women that we're working with um, in in our population, they they tend to... um, not want to eat because then they feel hungry and we have to instruct them and, and encourage them to understand that that's a very good sign that if you start to eat breakfast and you start to feel hungry, you've kicked in your metabolism and, and that's a good sign that you're making progress. And just reframing some of the, the things that they're used to and afraid of that have interfered with their ability to get off to a good start in the morning. The physical activity piece is is very strongly correlated with sleep. People who are exercising during the day are sleeping better at night, and even something as gentle as yoga can help with that. Um, and, and more and more research is coming out to show that, that uh, exercises like strength training and yoga, which is technically a type of strength training, can help with uh, the blood glucose regulation and weight loss and appetite in a way that purely just getting on a treadmill does not. So we really try and encourage a type, uh, a combination of activities so that you get a little bit of everything and benefit a little bit from each type of exercise that you might do. And then stress, um, if you are exercising, you, you tend to feel less stressed. You have a, a healthy channel for that uh, rather than always turning to food when you're feeling stressed out. And also, if you're managing your stress, then you're going to be more likely to fall asleep at night and not tossing and turning over where the next mortgage payment is going to come from, for example. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Janice Baker, and I am speaking with Monica Woolsey. We are discussing the relationship between diet and diabetes. Monica, what would you like healthcare professionals, such as psychologists, dermatologists, and reproductive medicine specialists, to know treating their patients with diabetes? For the psychologists who are listening, I would really encourage them to understand that a lot of the behavior that that they're seeing is not purely intentional and that there are hormonal and biochemical factors that are driving certain behaviors um, it may not be non-compliant as much as some kind of a message that's traveling through the nervous system that's making it challenging for someone to actually follow through on intentions. And, and when you take that approach, 
um, you take a lot of the shame out of the conversation with the client and help them to learn to step outside of themselves and play non-judgmental detectives. Um, for the, the dermatologists and any, actually any uh, medical practitioner who is working under the constraints of a, a six to ten minute office visit, consider really channeling your patients into some type of a consultation with a counselor or a dietitian who has more time to explore some of the mind, body, emotional components. I find that a lot of the hard science type clinicians are well intended, but they don't consider the disordered eating and the stress and all of the things that are interfering with what they want to manage with the medications and, and other treatments. Those are great points. So what would you like endocrinologists and primary care physicians to understand about the emotional components of diabetes for their patients? Just to understand that it, it's very stressful to change food behavior. It's one of the most complicated behaviors that we can ask a person to change, and we're asking them to pretty much go upstream with all of the messages that they're being bombarded with on television, in their family. And when you're asking a patient to change, you're asking a family system to change, and maybe even an office system where there are potlucks and so forth that, that are affecting a person's ability to comply. And, and just understand that these changes take a lot longer than um, a couple of visits with a dietitian, and they can take longer than six weeks. And it's, you can't just hand someone a sheet of paper and expect that to be the motivator. Where does health literacy and specifically diet education play a role in the overall management of diabetes? Clients not knowing what foods are in season, for example, so that they can eat fruits in season, um, not knowing how to read a label. Um, we have gotten to a point with our media where a lot of the health information people get, they're real, it's really press releases that are showing up on news shows as quote-unquote news. And so people are so bombarded with information, and it's just sound bites. And they may sound like when they come in your office like they're very educated and very literate, but when you break it down into what does that mean as far as what you're going to cook for dinner tonight, I get blank stares a lot of the time when, we, when I ask them to translate the information into action. So what is your six-prong approach to helping patients with diabetes? Well, the first point is to make sure that they're, they do have um, health literacy and, and an understanding of what foods will um, help them to, to promote healthy living. The second one is exercise, and I like to say activity, finding out what your active person is going to be about. The third one would be the uh, sleep hygiene and, and really dr driving home that sleep hygiene um, is one of the most important things and it's probably the, the last frontier of, of places where people understand they have to nurture themselves. The stress management, as we talked about, we are becoming more involved with working with acupuncturists with, with our program, understanding that there are a lot of things about stress and sleep and hormones that Eastern medicine seems to address more effectively than Western or that can help enhance Western-oriented programs. Um, and then the final one would be supplements, um, and not in place of medicine and not in place of all of the other changes, but really using the first five changes that I just described and, and, and five prongs to make sure that when you do choose a supplement, it's the right one and it's, and it's administered into an environment that is healthy and is going to be able to respond to the supplement. I would like to thank our guest, president and founder of After the Diet Network in Phoenix, Arizona, Monica Woolsey. 
Ms. Woolsey, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.